Why don't you grab your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, end of chapter 3, beginning of chapter 4 is where we're going to be in just a few minutes, so go ahead and find your place there. If you are visiting with us and maybe you don't own a Bible, there's a Bible in front of you in the seat pocket, I'd invite you to take that and you can follow along and the words will be on the screen as well. We're going to dive back into this text in just a few minutes, but let me take just a minute here at the beginning and share a brief update, if I can, about my family. And some things that are going on in my family, as many of you all are aware, and I want to share this as a praise, but I want to thank many, many of you and your prayers and your support. Uh, As of this past Wednesday, a major thing in our life shifted. Uh, Many of you know we have been the foster parents of two sweet little girls for about the past two years. And as of this, this past Wednesday, we are no longer foster parents. We are parents and we are, have been allowed to adopt these two wonderful little girls. And thank you for your support and your encouragement. <clears throat> uh, you're clapping. When you clap, you know you're clapping much more for my wife than you are me. She's the one that carries the bread of a lot of this. And she's saying amen right now. You can't see her. But uh, incredible picture of the gospel. Incredible picture of what it means to be adopted into the family of God. The judge, when he brought down the gavel, so to speak, made a statement that I wasn't quite ready for. He said, now these two little girls are a part of your family as if they had been born in your family. And I thought, wow, what a picture of the gospel. That's what Jesus does for us, you know, when he adopts us into his family. It's as if we were born into his family. We were reborn in his family. So a beautiful picture of the gospel. And with that, I want to say again, uh, with what God has allowed us to go through, I want to also say pray for and I commend and so thankful and encourage the families in our church that continue to foster the families in our church that have adopted over the past few years a desire of mine and a desire is that this church would be an example to many churches in our area of foster care and of adoption at any given moment there are about 300 boys and girls in the foster system in Washington County Enough churches coming together and working together, you realize, could end the foster care problem in Washington County and Sullivan County alike. And I pray for those, even in our congregation, that are considering a step into something like foster care and adoption. And what a picture it is of the testimony and of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's my sermon about that. Now we're going to have a sermon about First Timothy. So thank you again for your encouragement and your support to my family and how I long for our church to lead out in that in our community. First uh, Timothy chapter 3. We're going to be in 3, then we're going to jump into chapter 4. Uh, this morning, i got to tell you, it's one of those messages that I've been wrestling with for several weeks, several days, even as late as last night, up trying to figure out exactly, Lord, I want to I make sure I say what you're saying here correctly. I don't want to go further than what the Scripture says. I don't want to hold anything back than what the Scripture says. So let me just introduce it this way. Uh, everybody in this room can probably give a testimony of a friend maybe a family member, maybe an acquaintance, whatever it is, that there were a period of time in their life that they were very spiritually active. They were active in the church. They were active about the things of God. They, they seemed to be passionate about the person of Jesus. They seemed to be passionate about their walks with the Lord. And then over time, you observed a drifting or a, as the Bible is going to call it, even a falling away of that person. 
I can give testimony to that. I was talking to Jennifer about this yesterday. When we were in college, we had a group of six or seven really close friends that we ran with. Uh, one of those friends in college was a young lady named Jennifer Belcher. I ended up marrying her. That worked out really well. Thank God for that. But even as we were talking yesterday, some of those, some of those friends who were heavily involved in Campus Crusade, they were on fire for the things of God. Two of them are even in my mind right now. I can see their face. I'm thinking of their names. Two of them now today have rejected their faith altogether. And they're not just drifting. They are adamantly opposed to anything. That has to do with Christ and the scriptures and the Bible. One is engaged in an open gay lifestyle. And as we talk about this and we think about this, there's got to be faces and names that maybe are going through your mind of people that used to be around and they're not around anymore. What is that all about? Pew Research, a very reputable research firm in our country, has designated an entire new group of people in our country. They are referred to as the nuns. Now, not the N-U-N-S that wear black clothes and do good things. Not the N-U-N-S. The N-O-N-E-S. The nuns are a demographic group of people in our country who profess no belief. They believe nothing in particular. They would lean toward atheism or agnosticism. They would just say, we don't really believe anything at all. Currently, the Pew Research says that this makes up about one in every four Americans declare themselves to be nuns. Now, the striking part of that statistic for me that I read through even this week was this. Of, that, of those one quarter of Americans who say we don't really believe anything, 78% of them said they had a religious upbringing. They grew up in church. And somewhere along the line, what they said they held to or what they said they believed or what they had been taught, now they're to the place where they would say, I don't really even believe that anymore. I reject that. And I'll just say that I don't really believe anything anymore. They would be the nuns. So what do we do with that? How does the Bible deal with that? How how does the Bible deal with those People that maybe are coming to your mind and maybe even you here this morning are are drifting and you have serious questions about the things you say you believe or how you were brought up or you have someone very close to you that's wrestling with that. Does the Bible give us any help with that this morning? Well, 1 Timothy chapter 4 is where we're going to start. Now, I'm going to back up and pull in the end of chapter 3 in a minute, but let me start in chapter 4. Paul is going to address a big issue this morning, and we're going to do our best to walk through it as a family of faith this morning. He's going to deal with what I call the peril of falling away. The peril of falling away. Paul is writing, he's writing to his young son in the faith, Timothy. Evidently, Timothy's wrestling with some of these issues at his church in Ephesus that he's leading at that time. We know if you've been with us, if you're reading through 1 Timothy, that there have been false teachers that have crept into the church and they're attempting to pull away people from the faith. They're attempting to pull people away from the gospel. And Paul writes to give Timothy some help. And us some help as well. So let's begin reading verse 1. I'm going to make some observations and then we're going to give some practical applications. And then they go back and pick up the end of 1 Timothy 3. Verse 1. Paul says, But 
Now stop right there. <laughs> You're not going to get very far this morning, Pastor Mike. Well, let me just encourage you. The New American Standard begins chapter 4, verse 1 with the word but. The word but is there as a contrast. At the end of chapter 3, he's talking about the household of faith, the church, those who are within the church, those who are walking with God, those who are wrapped their, wrapped their lives around the truth, those who are enjoying the fellowship of God's people, those who are persevering, those who are enduring, those who are continuing. And then he gets to chapter 4, verse 1, and he says, but, contrast, let me show you something very different. Verse 1, he says, but the Spirit, the Spirit of God, explicitly word explicitly is a very powerful, clear word to say. Outspoken, he is distinct, he doesn't mumble about this. The Spirit of God, through the inspiration of the Word of God, that the Spirit of God says that in the latter times, when is that? Well, throughout the New Testament, the time that we are in now is referred to as the latter times. First John says, little children, know that you are in the last times. You are in the latter times. That's now from Christ's first coming in between his second coming is referred to in the New Testament as latter times, the end times, now. The Spirit clearly, the Spirit distinctly has communicated and said, some, some, will fall away from the faith. That's a tough statement. The word fall away here literally means to depart from something. We get the word apostate from it. It it means to move away from my original position. Now, we're going to really ping off this word a lot, so I don't want you to drift off here because we're going to refer to this a lot. The idea of falling away here is not merely Oh, I have occasional doubts. It's not merely the idea that I've, I've drifted for a few weeks, but I'm, I'm getting, it, it's not that idea. The idea of falling away here is a complete rejection of what I formerly held to and even declared to believe. Falling away here is not Peter who drifted. It's not, it's not Thomas in the New Testament who doubted. Falling away here is Judas, who walked with Jesus for three and a half years. He saw all Jesus did. He saw all Jesus said. He was exposed to an immense amount of revelation and truth. And at the end of his life, or at the end of the ministry of Jesus, was the one who turned on Jesus and said to the point, I so reject it, I'm going to be a part of betraying him. Falling away is a willful, if you will, turning from the former place that I held. How does that happen? I mean, how does that happen? Again, faces maybe are going through your mind or, or names are going through your mind. Paul says, the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith. Paying attention, I'm continuing in verse 1, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Wow. Now Paul's getting really heavy. The word pay attention means to attach or to devote oneself to. It doesn't just mean give a casual look to. I'm devoting myself now to to a doctrine of demon. A lie has snuck in and got me. Verse 2 says, By means of the hypocrisy of liars, 
seared in their own consciences as with a branding iron. I'll come back and explain what that means in just a minute. But shortly, I'll just say this. Demons deceive and use the mouths of human false teachers and human leaders. Doctrines of demons, deception is always propagated or multiplied in our world through human instruments. Verse 3. So Paul's going to give some examples, some examples of some of the junk that was being taught there at Ephesus. He says, men, these false teachers who forbid marriage, they advocate abstaining from certain foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. Paul's going to give an example. It's very ironic that one of the distortions Paul refers to here has to do with a distortion of marriage. Incredibly ironic. False notion here that any form of food or drink will somehow commend us to God. There's this legalistic false teaching that had begun to creep in and say, well, what you eat or what you don't eat or all these different things, they commend you or they don't commend you to God. One of the characteristics of false teaching is it focuses on secondary issues and pulls people away from the person and the work of Christ. That's what was going on. Verse 3 or verse 4. Paul concludes, he says, For everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it's received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. So what do we do with this? I mean, maybe this is an issue that you've wrestled with, or maybe it's an issue that you've had theological questions about, never really knew how to to deal with it. What does the Bible say about those that we know and we observe who were all in, it seemed, with Jesus? I mean, even this morning, I was talking to my brother Jim, and we were talking about some really famous people that maybe come to your mind, maybe in the Christian entertainment industry that you would have said five years ago, man, they are bulwarks, they are foundational people, they are strong and solid, and then you watch for very long and they begin to turn and they fall into deep sin and then reject even the faith that they were singing about. How in the world do things like that happen? How does that happen? How does the peril of falling away take place? And what does it mean for those who truly are born again? Are we in danger of falling away? What does that mean for you and for me? Well, let's talk about it a little bit this morning. Again, when we talk about the idea of falling away, let me remind you, we're not talking about those who have never heard the gospel We're not talking about those who have never professed Christ. We're not talking about those who are merely drifting. We're not talking about those who might doubt. We're talking about those that reject the reality and the truthfulness of Christ and of His Scripture. Jesus said that this would happen. Jesus warned us that we should expect this. Matthew 24, 10 and 11, Jesus says this, At that time, speaking of the end times, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Jesus says many false prophets will arise and mislead many. Hebrews chapter 3, speaking to a primarily Jewish audience that had really grown up in the days of Jesus and had seen so much of the life of Jesus, And yet still rejected, Hebrews 3 says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. What do you do with that? Well, let me try to help us as much as I can this morning. I'm going to give three or four truths that come out of this passage, and then we're going to go back and make an application to our lives 
out of 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to back up a little bit here in just a second. But let me give you a few truths that I believe come from the passage we just read together. Let me, we're going to walk through these verses. So here we go. Truth number one is this. Vital truth number one is this. It seems from what we just read from Paul that falling away is preceded by deception. Verse 1 says that those who fall away, they begin to pay attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Something has, something, has, something has entered into their thinking. Something has been presented to them. Something that looks really pretty and seems to align with Scripture. And they've begun to allow their thinking to go down that path. And here's what happens. It begins to distort and minimize Christ, the person of Christ, the work of Christ. And they begin to chase a doctrine of a demon or a teaching of a demon. Pew Research, what I referred to before, when interviewing some of those who said they were a nun or no belief whatsoever, asked, why did you walk away, if you will? One of the top responses was something to this effect, and I quote, I began to believe in evolution when I went off to college. A false teaching doctrine of demon began, of a demon began to grab hold of their thinking. Paul is writing to remind Timothy that there are deceivers who are deceiving and being deceived and will result in some falling away. Vital truth number one, falling away seems to be preceded by deception, lies. For us as believers, that's why throughout the New Testament there is a warning, there is a flashing light that continues to tell us, 1 John 4, 1, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they are from God. Don't you be so gullible that you believe everything that comes down the pike. Don't you, believe so, don't you be so gullible to believe everything that's in Lifeway Christian store. And don't you be so gullible to believe the writings of anyone who says they have new revelation from God and they are speaking for God as if the scripture was not sufficient. Dangerous. Dangerous. So Paul says the falling away seems to be preceded by deception. Number two, the source of deception is demonic. He says they're paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. The word doctrine just means a teaching or something that's held to. It's a construct. It's a, it's a worldview. It's not just little slogans or little statements. A doctrine is something that's built. It's a worldview, if you will, of how to look at yourself, how to look at the world, how to look at things. And listen, the enemy is very good about building false worldviews. I want to also say something else. We read the idea, anytime I think we see the word demonic in Scripture, Hollywood has so trained us, we immediately go to this paranormal, this, this idea of sensational activities of demons, you know, of heads spinning around on shoulders and lightning coming down from heaven and guys, you know, killing vampires with stakes and all that. Listen, most of that stuff is just a smokescreen. Biblically, the main activity of the demonic world that influences your life and my life, watch this, is lies. Lies. Greatest activity of your enemy, the greatest activity of the demonic world, do people get demon-possessed? Sure, it's a reality. Here's how it affects most of us. We believe a lie. And the root and the source of those lies, Jesus would say, are from the father of lies himself, Satan and his demons. You live in a sea of that world of lies. So 
Deception seems to precede this falling away. The source of deception is demonic. Thirdly, a seared conscience, according to what Paul says, a seared conscience is fertile ground for demonic deception. Now, I want to talk about this for a minute. What does that mean? Paul says these false teachers, these human beings that buy into these lies and then even begin to propagate these lies and teach these lies and write books about them and hold conferences about these lies, these guys are suffering from what he calls a seared conscience. Now you and I know the conscience is something that God has given us. It's an internal warning system to discern right and wrong. But Paul says it is possible that our conscience can become seared or even left inactive. And you say, how do we sear our conscience? How does our conscience become dull? The word seared here literally is the word we get cauterized from. It's like a branding iron that you put on a blood vessel or something and it cauterizes it. Paul says that can happen to your conscience and my conscience. And the way it happens to our conscience is is we ignore our conscience and we continue to go headlong into sin. Basically, we do whatever we want regardless of what Scripture says or regardless of what our conscience says. And it leaves our conscience less healthy and less active and it no longer fires in the way it was intended because we neglect and ignore our conscience. Now, listen to this. This is crucial for you and me. Evidently, the conscience can become dull as we continue in sin. And often what happens is this. I've seen this progression in people's lives, even a couple of fellows that I mentioned earlier. Their conscience becomes seared because they choose a particular route of sin. And then because they've chosen a particular route of sin, here's what happens. They begin to be open and susceptible, watch this, for a belief system that will fit their lifestyle. Paul is saying these guys with a seared conscience were fertile ground for demonic deception. To appease our conscience, we will find a belief system that will allow us to do what we want to do. One of the greatest minds that ever lived was a true believer. His name was Blaise Pascal. He said this. This quote's on the board. I want you to get this so much. He says this. He says, people almost invariably arrive at their beliefs not on the basis of proof but on the basis of what they find attractive. What does that mean? That means Paul is talking about a pattern in the lives of some that fell away that chose a pattern of sin because they wanted it and enjoyed it and liked it and then they were able to find a worldview or a belief system that fit their lifestyle. Pascal said, sometimes we arrive at our worldview not because we've studied it, not because we're on a pursuit of truth, but because we want to live any way we want. And that's what Paul seems to be saying here. I will cling to a belief system that allows me to live however I want to live. I'll just say this. Being in the college scene for a while when I was younger, knowing the, knowing the popularity at times of the atheistic evolution system often many buy into that system not because of the weight of evidence but because in the end evolution allows you to be your own God and rule your own little universe however you choose to rule it many 
And I think maybe even this morning, and I don't know who even in this room might be struggling with it, the temptation is, no, it's not that I've found something that's true. It's not that I'm pursuing something that's right. It's that I've found something that fits and allows me to live however I want to live. Maybe a level of honesty for some of us would be good this morning. So Paul continues on, and I'm going to give you one more final truth, and then we're going to come back to 1 Timothy chapter 3. So he says, okay, falling away is preceded by deception. The source of deception is demonic. A seared conscience is fertile ground, demonic. And then number four, let, let, let me try to help us in the idea of, okay, so Pastor Mike, then who is, who is susceptible to fall away? I mean, you're, you're, you're kind of getting in now to the realm of some heavy theology of the idea of, okay, I, I've always been taught, I've always believed, Pastor Mike, that if I'm truly saved, then I'm always saved. And does the Bible teach that? And do we as a church hold to that? Well, let me address that very quickly because you can't leave here this morning without hearing what we believe the Bible absolutely teaches about that. Vital truth number four is this. Falling away reveals the true condition of the soul. In other words, the Bible seems to clearly teach, and Jesus teaches this in a parable about the soils, that those who ultimately fall away are at the place where they completely reject Christ, completely reveal tr- or completely reject truth, completely reject Scripture. Ultimately, what that falling away is revealing is the true condition of their soul all along. So where do you get that from? It's all over the New Testament. Let me just give you one example really quick. Jesus in Matthew 13 teaches a parable very famous parable about the sower and the soils. You know, he teaches this farmer, and this farmer goes out, and he has all his seed, and he says the seed is a metaphor for the Word of God, and the sower goes out to sow, and it falls on four different kinds of soil. The first soil was the, was the hard trail where people walked, and man, the seed fell on that trail, and the birds came along and ate up that seed, and it had no impact in that heart. That's a hard, calloused heart that just rejects from the beginning. He said then there's the type of soil that, that's a thorny soil the seed falls in certain places and and the weeds and the thorns begin to come in and they they choke out the vitality of that word it's the cares and the anxieties of the world that choke out that word and that person even if they give some faint resemblance of being a believer it's very short-lived and their soul was never truly converted then he says there's the rocky soil this is very important Jesus says there's some The seed falls on rocky soil and there's this thin layer of topsoil, very thin. And under it's this hard sedentary rock. And the seed, what will happen is the sower will sow the seed and the seed will go into that real shallow soil. And it'll go and it'll, it'll spring up really quick. And there'll be flowers and everybody will get excited and everybody will look, oh, look what's happening. This seed is so fruitful. But then the root will go down and it'll hit that rocky soil. And Jesus says, what's really going on is it's totally superficial because there's no root there. And he speaks of it in, Matthew, in Mark chapter 4, verse 16. Speaking of this soil, Jesus says, verse 16. Go ahead and put that up on the screen. He says, in similar way, These are the ones whom seed was sown on the rocky places. That's the third type of soil. Who when they hear the word, they immediately receive it with joy. They walk the aisle. They sign the card. They pray the prayer. They attend all the Christian events for a while. Verse 17. And they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. 
then when affliction or persecution arises, in other words, when they begin to be tested to reveal what's really there, persecution or affliction arises because of the word, because there's no root, because there's no depth, because there's no reality, immediately they, what's the phrase? Fall then the fourth type of soil was the good soil that the seed's sown. It goes into the heart. It bears much fruit. And that's the person that endures. That's the person who truly knows Christ. So Jesus and Paul seem to refer to a group of people who ultimately fall away. And they're falling away over time. Watch this. Reveals what the true condition of their soul was all along. 1 John 4, I'm sorry, 1 John 2 says something very similar. Verse 19, do we have that verse? Yeah. John says, they went out from us. Talking about those within the fellowship. He says, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they were not at all of us. What does that mean? In other words, time, difficulties, challenges, persecution, affliction, ultimately reveals. Peter talks about testing the heart. It doesn't change the heart, but it reveals what the heart truly is. Either a genuine, born-again, sold-out believer in in Jesus Christ who has placed faith in Christ and Christ alone will endure and is secure. But many, Paul says, there are some who are this shallow soil. And they have the external trappings that look very Christian, but time reveals that it was all very super. See that? Pastor Mike, do you believe a person can be truly born again and then fall away? Here's what the Bible seems to teach. It is common for men and women to trust in something other than Jesus. Maybe they trust in an emotional experience. Maybe they trust in the feel-good God. Maybe their faith is in the God of their own creation, but not the true saving God of the Bible. Maybe they trust in a prayer they prayed. Maybe they trust in their upbringing. Maybe they trust in their own goodness. It is very possible, and I would say, let me say this as a warning to me included, in the South, very, very, very common to place faith, if you will, in something other than King Jesus and Jesus alone. And I'll say this, faith in anything outside of Jesus Jesus alone, Jesus of the Bible, the finished work of Jesus, that Jesus will save us, Jesus is sanctifying us, and one day Jesus will glorify us again. Faith in anything but Him and Him alone absolutely will fall away. It will not endure. And time will reveal that. But, in the same vein, the Bible clearly teaches this. That those who have placed saving faith, complete dependence, trust in the person and work of the crucified, resurrected Jesus of the Bible are secure in Christ for eternity. Ephesians 1.13 says, In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. 
John 10, verse 27, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. Isn't that good news? There is a holding on of us by God himself of those who are his true children. Jesus says, verse 29 of John 10, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So there is a sense that time reveals those who are merely superficial, and there will be a falling away, but time also reveals those who are genuinely in Christ as their life bears fruit and they endure to the end. Now, I'm going to throw a little wrinkle at you. How does God do that? In other words, well, how does God do what, Pastor Mike? I don't even know what you're asking. How does God keep us? Those that are truly born again, those that know Christ. And by the way, the only person that truly knows the soul is God. How does God keep us? And how does God keep us in the faith? Jesus says in Matthew 24, 13, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. That doesn't mean, okay, I've got to hang on, and if I hang on, Jesus is going to save me. No, if I have genuine salvation and I'm genuinely born again, I will endure to the end. How does he sustain us until the end? Because it's really easy for us in church circles to say, yeah, I believe in once saved, always saved. I believe in God's sovereignty. He's going to keep me. Yes, I absolutely believe in that. But watch this. Here's what I want you to hear this morning. How does God do it? In other words, God determines the outcome. God determines the end. But God also determines the means that he brings it about. I have no idea what you're talking about, Pastor Mike. Help me. Go back to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. I will show you something very quickly. And we're going to be done. And I'll say this, I think if you're here and you're a genuine born-again believer and you grasp what 1 Timothy 3 and Hebrews 10 is going to say to you, you will never look at the assembly of the saints and the gathering of God's people the same. What do you mean? Verse 14. Paul says, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household, the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of the truth. I want to show you one word in that passage very quickly. Paul says the church, not the mortar, not the structure, not the lights, the people, the church is the household of God. Circle that word, household. The word household means the idea of oikos. That's the original Greek word. Oikos means family. Oikos means the people of God. Oikos means the idea of as a believer, I'm a part of a broader family, the very family of God. So here's your life application. I'm going to give you, give you two of them. They're really one sentence stretched out. How does God sustain? How do I endure to the end practically? Yes, it's God. Yes, it's God's grace. But how does he practically do it in my life day in and day out? Number one, how do we endure to the end? Number one, we press into the family of God. Paul says the family of God, the oikos. 
the household, the family of faith. Pastor Mike, I'm still not making the connection. I'm not getting what you're saying. Let me go to Hebrews chapter 10. Put this verse up on the screen. I'm going to walk you through this verse really quick. The writer of Hebrews is writing to a group of believers who are struggling. They're facing persecution. They're the minority. They're trying to endure. They're first generation believers. And he says this. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. That's what we've just been talking about. Yes, I'm a believer. Yes, I'm going to hold on because he's holding on to me. But God, how do you practically sustain me day in and day out in this journey of being a believer as the minority? Keep reading. For he who promised is faithful. Yes, it's God. Yes, it's its grace. How do you do it? Verse 24. Watch this. And. Verse 24 begins with the word and, meaning the two are connected. He says, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Next verse. Not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Listen to me. God has determined that those who are his own will endure to the end and the means by which he carries us through to the end is he has placed us into the living, visible family of God. And we are unable to sustain ourselves. We say, I don't know why I'm struggling. I don't know why I'm doubting. I don't know why I feel so out of of sorts. I don't know why I feel like I'm so much on the outside. If we forsake the means of grace that God has given us of the people of God. Listen, that means when we gather on Sunday morning as the people of God, we are singing the truth of God's Word. We are holding out the truth of God's Word. We are gathering and we are encouraging one another. It matters eternally. Just keep reading. Press into the family of God. And let me give you the second life application point that pings off of that. Press into the family of God. This is number two. Strengthening one another with the living word of God. This is a beautiful picture. Verse 16, he says, he's already said the church, the, the church, the oikos, the family of God. We are the pillar and support of the truth. And then he says, by common confession, here's what we encourage one another with. Great is the mystery of godliness. And then this passage is set apart in your Bible. And the reason is, is because what we're reading in verse 16 was a song that the early church sung together of truth and of who the person of Christ was to encourage and stimulate and motivate one another so that they would endure to the end. And here's the content of what they sang. Listen to this. They sang about Jesus. The early church, they gathered. They sang the truths of who Christ was. They faced persecution out there. They They were a minority. They were put on the fringe. And they would come together as the people of God. And they would sing truths like this. Jesus, who was revealed in the flesh, saying... The God-man came and walked among us, was vindicated in the Spirit. That's a reference to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just like what we sang here this morning. 
It is vital to the ongoing vitality of your faith together with God's people in large group, in small group, in homes, around the Word of God, and to hear your brothers and sisters sing, Jesus lives. It is vital to your ongoing, continuing faith. I sat down here this morning, and I was singing, and I looked up on this stage, and i got to tell you, I think he just walked out. He had to go somewhere to see Mike Kanzler stand here as my elder who has been walking in this journey a lot longer than I have. I mean a lot longer. I'm just kidding. A lot longer than I have. Listen to me. Raising his hand and singing, I know my Redeemer lives. And he sings it and he believes it and he knows it and his life backs it up. Do you know what that does for my walk with God? The gathering, the grouping of God's people is the means, one of the means that God uses to sustain you so that you and I as true born-again believers in Christ will endure to the end. Don't forsake the assembling as if it were just an option that we casually do. One of the dangers in the South is we've grown up in church, it's just what we do, and it's just a habit, and we don't realize eternity is on the line. Eternity is on the line. So I'm out of time. Got more text than I have time. But we're going to stop there. God uses the gathered family of God. I'm going to ask the team to come on up on stage. We're not, don't, don't check out on me yet, but team, come on up on stage. We're going to begin to sing in just a minute. God uses the gathered family of God in groups as we gather like this, sharing, teaching, speaking, singing the living word of God to energize and sustain his people to the end. <laughs> this week I had an uh, incredible opportunity to sit down in a brief conversation with one of our seasoned saints. She's 72 years old. She's been walking with God a whole lot longer than I have. And she asked me to pray for her. And the reason she asked me to pray for her, and I can't even use her name because of the sensitivity of what she's getting ready to do, but the reason she asked me to pray for her is because at 72 years old, she got on a plane this past week and she headed to serve the refugees in the Middle East because she loves the Lord Jesus and she's enduring to the end. And I said, what can I share with your church family? I mean, I, I want to be able to pray for you. And I know it's highly sensitive. I can't share your name. I can't share where you're going. She said this, I want you to pray this. I know God had things planned for me to do before the foundation of the world. And the 72-year-old saint said, even at the end or near the end, I want to finish and get everything done God has called me to do. That is a woman who has endured to the end because the Christ in her is real and her family means everything to her. It has sustained her to the end as we gather around the Word of God. It matters when the people of God come together. Don't forsake that. Would you bow your head? The team just began to play a little bit and I want you to just have a moment there on your own to respond to the word of God this morning and I know there's multiple responses it may have well, some need to slip out and they have 
opportunities to serve this morning. You have responsibilities. I understand that if you need to slip out. But for the rest of us, I want you to pay very close attention this morning. Number one is this. Some of you are here. A church this size. And you were one of those that the seed of the Word of God has fallen into your heart. But either it's been choked out by the cares of the world. Either it's fallen and it's sprung up and maybe borne some outward visible fruit for a period of time. But it's not real. Your faith is in something less than King Jesus and Jesus alone. You're trusting yourself. You're trusting a prayer you prayed. You're trusting your upbringing. You're trusting something other than Jesus. This morning, here's the word of God to you. Repent from self-centeredness or repent from trusting in yourself and cling to Jesus. Cling to Jesus. Call out to him right there in your seat. Lord Jesus, I need you. I trust you. I give you my life. God, I don't want to play the game. I'm so empty. I'm believing everything that comes along. Here's the answer. Jesus Christ and him crucified, risen from the dead to take away your sin and give you life. Call out to him in faith. Some of you here this morning in the church, the family of God, the gathering, the grouping of the people of God is something you might try. It's something that's part of your life but boy it's not priority listen and you wonder why you're struggling you wonder why you're weak you wonder why you have doubts God has given you the gift of a family press into that family Lord we love you Jesus thank you for my brothers and sisters thank you for the family of God I need this family you have designed it that way God so that we will be energized and sustained and endure to the end to the glory of the grace of God and God I pray you do business in the lives of men and women here this morning in Jesus name we pray Amen